First Timothy chapter six. First Timothy chapter six. We're going to notice verses three through eleven. Paul said, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and do the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from which with from from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. I'm hopeful that our nation can turn itself around, that we can be righted. That as a nation we can turn and and head in a better direction, one that is going toward God instead of away from God. You know, the changes of the recent past have been anything but good. They have been absolutely to the contrary. They have been not good. They have harmed our nation. They've harmed our people. And those ideas and those beliefs that for the last several years has been that have been uh, put forth in society, it has worked its way into the church. We have members of the Lord's church who... Uh, believe that a person is born a homosexual. I've talked with people that believe that, that are members of the Lord's church, that believe they're born that way. You have people in the Lord's church who will not stand up against uh, the murder of an unborn child. They simply won't do it. They'd rather say nothing. But those are not the only changes. See, changes begin small. One of the changes that sticks out foremost in my mind as I think about our uh, culture moving further and further to the left, away from God. While we were living in Memphis, on occasion I would have to drive down Interstate 55 South toward Mississippi, whether I was going to South Haven or whatever the case may be. But I would be on Interstate 55, I would be headed south. Well, that roadway takes you right into Tunica. They'll take you right to the gambling capital of the southeast. And on the way, you see signs advertising Tunica. You know, no longer do these signs mention anything about gambling. They don't talk about gambling. Instead, they talk about gaming. Gaming, right? Because after all, a game never hurt anyone. Do you see how changes are made? It's done subtly. People who want to come into a congregation and want to change that congregation away from a faithful one to a more liberal one or to a more anti-one, they, they do it slowly. 
You don't come in on the first day and say, I'm here to change the doctrine that you're used to hearing. I'm going to go against the Bible. It is done slowly and deceptively. Much like changing the word gambling to gaming. It's not scary anymore. You don't have to worry about gaming. Kids and children, they play games. So, when we think of that, that's just one problem that we've had, we ha- we've had in the past as we see our culture changing. So what do we do? What do Christians do? What are we going to do when we're faced with these subtle changes and we pick up on them? Well, I think we do what Paul said. He said, flee in full pursuit. He said, get away from those things, but he didn't just say that. He said to do something else. You can't do one without the other. You have to flee from sin, but then you have to pursue righteousness. And that's what Paul said. When Christians begin to do that, then maybe the rest of the world will take notice of what's going on and see that there is something different out there. It isn't good enough to talk about how bad our country is or our nation if we do the exact same things that people who live contrary to God's law are doing those things. I believe Job is another example of a great man who learned how to live in a corrupt society. Listen to the description of Job. Job 1.1 There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright. And one that feared God and eschewed evil. Job was complete. He was upright. He wasn't sinlessly perfect. He was a mature follower of God. Spiritual maturity. That's what we're talking about. And that's what Job had. The word S-U means to decline, to turn off, to depart, and to withdraw. Job fled from evil and sin. And that's exactly what Paul encouraged Timothy to do. That's what Paul has encouraged each of us to do. How do we do that? Well, I think we do it the same way that Timothy did. We fill ourselves with righteousness. We have to do that. Years ago... A man by the name of Joe Bailey, the late Eternity Magazine columnist, visited some German Christians. Now these German Christians, two of them happened to be uh, soldiers in the German army during World War II. And as he was visiting with these Nazi army soldiers, he found out that two of them, the two, had been put up for promotion. The commandant said that he would agree to the promotion, but they had to join the officers' club. All officers had to join the officers' club. Well, these two men thought about it, and they decided that they would not do that, based upon the fact that there was dancing at the officers' club, and they knew that that could lead to immorality. So they declined. Well, because of they're declining to do that, they did not gain the promotion. Well, later in their military careers, these same two men were assigned to death camps. And they were located at death camps where thousands and thousands of Jews and other people were put to death. They were herded into ovens and smothered to death and killed in the death camps. Well, now, even though They did not directly participate in that. They knew what was going on, yet they did not voice any protest. So when Joe Bailey talked to them many years later, 
They looked back on their experiences with no regret, convinced that they had, in fact, made the right decisions. They felt like they had certainly made the right one concerning their promotion. And because for them, conforming to social pressure and refusing to dance was an act of righteousness. But at the same time, conforming to patriotic mass murder and remaining silent while thousands of people burned to death in the ovens left them with no feelings of unrighteousness. You see the problem. When we set our standard of external righteousness to what everybody else is doing, there's nothing that we won't do. See, we have to set our standards according to God's standards. When we're not filled with righteousness, we're not going to be good. And when we are filled with righteousness, there is no good that is too great. And we see that those things happen in the world today. How can people today flee in full pursuit? Notice again, What Paul said, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. But we can't do it like the German soldiers did it. We have to do it according to God's standards. I think they were right in the first case. They were not going to allow themselves to be drawn off track by immoralities. Yet they really missed it on the second count, didn't they? But wait a minute, one might say, I didn't participate in those things. I didn't have anything to do with that. I just didn't make a big deal out of it. Well, I think God probably would like for us to make a big deal out of it. I think as we look at the life of Christ through the four biographies written about Him, He made a big deal out of sin. He was willing to stand up and say, that's not correct. We don't want to live that way. And God does not appreciate our living that way. And in fact, he made the statement, Matthew 12, verse 30. He said, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. I messed up my... But anyway, we can't sit on the fence, can we? We can't do that simply because we did not participate in something does not mean that we can just ignore it. Romans one thirty two tells us about that, doesn't he? Paul listed these great sins that people were committing, and we get down to verse 32, and he says, "...who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death." But he says, not only them, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. See, we can't do that. We can't support something or have pleasure in a sin, even though we don't participate in it. So we just simply can't do that. So if we're going to flee in full pursuit, we need to understand how to do that. We first must be steadfast. To be steadfast in our faith, we must first be steadfast mentally. We have to prepare. We have to have some knowledge, don't we? We have to understand what God's standards are. And that is accomplished by clothing ourselves in the armor of God. Paul talks about that, Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. He says, finally, 
Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. He didn't say just put on a little bit of it. He said put on the whole armor of God. And he talked about the various things that we need to put on and how they, how they helped us. Because he said, look, we wrestle against spiritual foes. We're not in a, in a physical battle. We're not going to be in a physical battle. But we're in a spiritual battle. We're fighting against Satan and those who would follow after him. He said there's spiritual wickedness in high places. So put on your armor. Be prepared to go into battle and be ready to wage the good war. Notice some of the things that he mentioned. He said, having your loins girt about with truth. Well, we have to have the standard. We have to have the canon, the truth. We have to understand what God wants. He said, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That prepares us. The gospel puts us in the direction in which we want to go. He said, above all, take the shield of faith, wherewith we can defend against the attacks of Satan. And then he goes on to say, and finally, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If we clothe ourselves, we will be steadfast mentally. We will understand and we'll know what we need to do in order to be steadfast. If we do that, we can defeat Satan. We can do that. We can dedicate ourselves to doing what God wants instead of what the flesh wants. David said this, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. Sin will stick to us, won't it? Hard to get it off. But God can help us get it off if we yield to Him. Have you ever heard a politician say, I don't agree with such and such personally, but that is someone's right to be able to do that. Well, that's what we're talking about in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 32. Someone may say, well, uh, abortion is the right, it's the law. Well, not according to God. When we look in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, he said, uh, the, the wise man said, God hates hands that shed innocent blood. See, we have to listen to God's standard. Not man's standard. Man's standards change from uh, generation to generation, don't they? Even when we look at the the period of the judges and after the time frame of when Joshua died and the elders after him died, what what is it that the writer stated? He said, and there arose another generation who knew not God. Just It, it just takes one generation. And so man's standards, people's standards change from generation to generation. But God's standards never change. Until we are prepared mentally to be steadfast, we may even continue to practice things that, that is wrong until we learn, until we find out. You see, so we want to be prepared mentally so we can be steadfast. Being mentally steadfast isn't the only area of focus though. When we're thinking about being steadfast, we need to also consider being Physically steadfast. We must be faithful in all things, including our attendance, right? If we act as if it is not necessary to uh, attend every service of the Lord's church that the leadership at any given congregation has determined that we should be at, then we are convincing ourselves of a lie. Hebrews 13, verse 7, the writer says to, uh, uh, to, to honor those 
to listen to those who have the rule over you, right? There is a hierarchy that God has ordained in the church. What we would love to have in every congregation, the, the best way for it to be, if, if possible, is to have an eldership. But that's not always possible. So then the men of the congregation assume that leadership role. And so when they decide that it is good for the membership to meet on a Sunday evening or a Wednesday night or to have a gospel meeting or a vacation Bible school or a summer series or whatever the case may be, they have deemed it necessary that that is what is needed to feed the souls of the congregation. And those members of the congregations are bound by that. We're not bound by the congregation down the street. We're autonomous, right? Some congregations only meet on Sunday mornings. They don't meet a second time on Sunday. They won't meet during the week. That's their prerogative. Is it wise? I don't think so. But is it sinful? Absolutely not. As long as they meet on the first day of the week at least one time to observe those things that we are to observe. We have to be there physically. Paul warned this. He said, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Galatians 6, 7. It's not possible to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ if we do not attend the services. 2 Peter 3, 18. We need to be aware of where we are physically speaking, right? We need to be aware of our surroundings. Are we somewhere we should not be? Are we not somewhere where we ought to be? But it's not just our physical surroundings that we ought to be aware of. We need to be aware of our brethren's positions, where they are physically. We need to keep an eye on each other, don't we? There are times when we need a little help or a little assistance in some way. Who's going to do that? Well, the brethren ought to be doing that. But how do we know who who oversees a, a work like that? How do we know who's in charge of making sure that the brethren are having an eye kept upon them? And if, if there's a legitimate issue that arises and, and they need some help, and it's not always monetarily. Sometimes it's emotionally or, or uh, otherwise. Who is in charge of that? that? I think that's a fair question. Well, fortunately for us, the writer of Hebrews told us. Let's notice Hebrews 10, 23 and 24. The writer says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. What does that mean exactly? Well, that means if we have 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 members in a congregation, we have 50, 60, 70 or 80 people who are keeping an eye on those exact same people. We are to look out for one another. We're to love each other. We cannot allow the things of this life to interfere with our spiritual life. We can't allow the acquaintances of this life to interfere with our righteousness and our steadfastness. Again, Paul warned, he said, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. We might say, do not fool yourselves. How you behave determines where you spend eternity. And those who with you who you associate with will influence where you spend eternity right that's how we might rewrite that phrase if we were doing that in our uh, vernacular today 
So we have to be very careful when we're trying to be steadfast. We have to keep an eye on, a, on ourselves mentally, on ourselves physically. But if we're going to flee in full pursuit, we must also be willing to serve. We have to be able to do that. To be able to serve faithfully, we must identify with Christ. We have to be able to identify with Him. After all, He is our example. He was left as a pattern for us. 1 Peter 2, 21, or rather His life was. It was recorded so we would know how He operated in this world. If we're going to identify with our Lord, we must first and foremost hunger and thirst after righteousness, Matthew 5, verse 6. That has to be a priority in our lives. Can it be said that one hungers and thirsts after righteousness if he tries to be neutral on the sinful actions of the world? Christ wasn't neutral. He wasn't neutral on anything that was sinful. He was neutral on some things, but not anything that was sinful. Jesus said, But seek you first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, Matthew 6.33. I think Paul would put it this way. I think he would say, Be not deceived. If you believe you are seeking God first, but you support sin in any way, you are deceiving yourself. And you're in danger of hellfire. See, we have to identify with Christ. We have to be able to do that. And we need to understand. We have to know a little something about hell. We have to talk about that. That's not something that we enjoy thinking about, is it? It's something that we have to understand. And we have to understand it so we don't go there. Christ preached more on hell than He ever did on heaven. It was such a danger that he warned this. He said, And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Matthew eighteen nineteen. Hell is not the place where we want to live eternally. We don't want to go there. And if we're waiting for the best opportunity to, to obey the gospel, we are deceiving ourselves. We're fooling ourselves. The gospel is simple. It's easy. There is no best time to obey the gospel. There is only now. There's no best time to submit to God. There is only now. And it's simple enough that we can follow it in obedience. If we're going to be able to do that, we have to be able to identify with Christ. But I think also that we need to simplify some things. We need to simplify. Paul said that there was simplicity in Christ, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. It's not something that we can't understand. It's not something that is above our heads. You know, Peter made the comment in one of his writings, he said, some things are hard to understand. And he made reference to some of Paul's writings. Are some of Paul's writings a little bit difficult to understand? Amen, they are. We're studying the book of Romans on Sunday morning. It can be a little difficult. In my opinion, it is the most difficult book in the New Testament to get a proper handle on. But it, it doesn't mean we can't understand it. Peter didn't say it was impossible to understand it. He just said it was difficult. What does that mean? We have to put forth some effort, right? We have to engage in the Word. We have to be willing to do that. And when we do not simplify our lives and we allow the clutter of this world <clears throat> to get in between us and our time that we spend with God, then we're not going to be able to do that. We're not going to be able 
to live godly lives when things interfere with our study. Notice what Paul said. He told Timothy, he said, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of God, handling properly the Word of God. I made mention just the other day in in Bible class, I was studying with an individual, and he was uh, espousing the realized eschatology doctrine. That means that Jesus has already come back the second time. Well, most Adventists believe that. They're, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Jehovah's Witness uh, denomination, they believe Jesus has already come back. He returned previously. And He did it silently. He did it invisibly. No one saw it but the few that, that He took back with Him. That's realized eschatology. Really what that is is, is foolishness, isn't it? It's foolishness is what that is. Christ hasn't returned. When we look in Second Timothy, or excuse me, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, first uh, nine verses, we learn what is going to happen when Christ comes back. There's going to be a shout. There's going to be a trump. There's going to be Christ coming to, to gather the faithful, but He's also coming with a flaming sword to take vengeance on those that know not God and obey not the gospel of His Son Jesus Christ. See, we have to be able to simplify our lives, and if we can't do that enough to fit God into it, then we're going to be in trouble. If we're going to flee in full pursuit, we have to be steadfast. We have to be willing to serve, but ultimately, here's what it boils down to. I believe we must be separate from the world. We have to remove ourselves from the world. So what does that mean? Does that mean we want to gather all the faithful together and build a commune somewhere and not allow any outsiders in and we just live amongst ourselves. Well, people have tried that over the years, right? Normally, it ends in bad results. Bad results. That's not at all what Paul was talking about. That's not at all what Christ taught. We are to separate ourselves while we're living in the world. Separate ourselves from the behaviors and the actions of the people in the world and not be influenced by them. Now, perhaps, maybe we, may we be influenced from time to time? Well, that, that tends to be the case. But what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to deny those urges. We're supposed to fend those temptations off. And when we mess up, we're supposed to repent, right? And then we continue on. And the longer we live, the more we mature, the more time we spend in the Bible, the easier it becomes to be faithful to Him. But our separation, it has to begin, or has to begin in one area. It has to start, I believe, with our deliberation. The wise man said this, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Proverbs 4.23 What is a person's spiritual heart? It's his mind, right? It's his mind. The seat of his emotion. We must guard that. Solomon knew, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, verse 7. Sin always begins in, in the heart. That's what Christ said. He said, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. Matthew fifteen nineteen through 20. The Pharisees were in a great uproar when they saw Christ's disciples eating with unwashed hands. 
Now, I prefer to wash my hands before I eat. But I have on occasion been in situations where I have been working and I had to eat my sandwich with unwashed hands. That's okay. As long as you can survive the nastiness, it'll be okay. But see, we have to keep our hearts clean. That's the thing we need to worry about. We have to guard our thoughts in different ways. We have to guard against the sins of the world, but we have to guard against giving up as well. right? We have to guard against giving up. Sometimes we look around the world and we think, man, I, we just cannot continue. Brother Ron and I spoke with a gentleman the other day and he was of the attitude that God was against us because the numbers of the churches of Christ were down. Well, that's just nothing can be further from the truth. God's never against us. He's always for us. And we can't give up. We can't give up that hope. Jesus told the church in Philadelphia, He said, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Hold fast to what you've got. Don't give it up. Fight for it. Don't just turn it over. He said, Hold fast to it. Have the necessary confidence in God to believe in the things that He's told us, right? He said, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love Him, James 1.12. I believe that. I believe James knew what he was talking about. I believe that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write that. Endure the things that come in this life. We have to separate ourselves from the world. And we have to do it through our deliberation, through our thoughts. We have to protect our minds and our hearts. But we also have to do it through our demeanor. And we know how that works, right? That's very simple. We cannot behave or act like the world behaves or acts. Listen again to the description of Job, the great man. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Job 1 verse 8. Job was different. If he lived in today's world, he would not support politicians that opposed God. He would not be silent on the sins of this world. He would stand up. He was a great servant for God. He feared Him. He loved Him. He followed Him. And he ran away from evil. We have to separate ourselves. Job would do that. Job would do that. Because it's our responsibility to do that, right? It's our responsibility. James 5 verse 20. Job would would talk to his brethren if they needed some help. He would be there to assist them, to help guide them back on the path. We need to guard what we hear. We need to guard what we see. We need to guard what we say. The whole world is looking out for the Christian who claims to be a Christian, but who lives as the world. They're looking out for that. They're wanting to find that individual so they can use that against God. They're wanting to find the the individual that makes a mistake so they can use that against God. So that's what they're after. We have to guard against that. Paul told Timothy, he said, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. 
Be brave enough to stand in the gap for God. Because someone's going to have to. And we have to be an example of God's people. Not to God's people. I think that's a very interesting statement. Paul admonished Timothy, be an example of the believers, not to them. Not to them. I think that says a lot. Anyone should be able to look at a member of the Lord's church and be an example of that group as a whole. Does that mean we don't make mistakes from time to time? Well, that's not what that means. But what it does mean is we recognize those and we want to make changes because we want to get to heaven. That's what we need to do. There's always going to be sin and corruption in the world as long as God allows the world to stand. But one day, Christ will return and all people will stand before Him in judgment. Acts 17.31 Revelation 20.12 says, and this was the last vision that John saw, The dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the, ju- and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. What are these books that he's talking about? There's at least two, and maybe more. He says, and the books were open. So that's at least two. And then another book was opened. That's another one. I think he's talking about the laws under which the people who are going to be judged lived. I think the books of the old patriarchal laws will be opened. The Old Testament. I think the... The Mosaic laws will be opened. The Old Testament. I think the the New Testament will be opened. That's going to be our judge. That's going to be the standard by which we are judged and held accountable. And then that other book that is opened, the book of life, has our names in it. And it has our actions. And we're going to be judged out of that according to their works, John said. We don't want the works that follow us to be those of this world. That's not what we're after. Whether we participated directly or simply said the actions of sin were okay. We don't want that because we don't want to reside in heaven. Solomon said this, but the, or said, the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Proverbs 28.1. That's true. Whether there's seven billion righteous or whether there's only eight. That statement is still true. Flee in full pursuit. And God will bless us for that. He'll help us through the hard times. We'll help each other through the difficult times. We'll be there for one another. But if we flee in full pursuit, God will bless us. Remember what He told Timothy. Get away from sin, but you have to fill yourself up with something good. Jesus told a parable concerning that. He said there was a man that had a demon in him. The demon was cast out. It said his inside was like a swept house, cleaned out, nothing put back in. So after a while, what did the demon do? He went back and he got a bunch of his friends. And they all moved in, back into the man. And and the man was worse off than he was to begin with. See, we have to fill ourselves up with something. We're going to fill ourselves up with something. Either be evil or be good. It'll be the works of Satan or it'll be the works of God. We have to keep that in mind. Flee in full pursuit. If you've fallen away from the Lord, you need to come back to Him this night. You do that by fleeing in full pursuit, right? You get away from sin and you turn toward God. We know that we can be forgiven of sins that we commit through repentance of that sin, confession to God that we've committed those sins, owning that sin and praying and asking Him to forgive us. And He will if we do that.
If you have need to answer this Lord's invitation, do that as we stand and as we sing.